You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Hey, welcome to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. David, how are you this beautiful fall day here in the South, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving? I'm a happy camper. The, all the leaves are in the compost pile. Oh, see, you, you are, uh, you're a few steps ahead of me. Because, uh, one, you have a compost pile, and two, you've raked your leaves up. <laughs> well, I, I, I was forced to uh, get a compost pile in that... Uh, uh, I, well, you live in the country, so yes. to speak, so you don't have to worry about it. But uh, the uh, the city of uh, Sandy Springs does not uh, does not pick up like Fulton County used to, and I've also got limbs and stuff that oh, I cut down. So everything goes, goes in, in the there? back. Uh, you burn your limbs first to make them smaller, or not? No, uh, because I, you know I've never figured out the burning. Rules. Yeah, they're very confusing to me too. It's like when can you discharge yeah. a firearm on your property as well? It's very, it's very confusing a, to uh, say the least. But it is beautiful here in the south. I'm going to spend a little time on uh, Thursday and Friday in my garden and, and uh, fantastic. Uh, and trying to get it ready for the winter. I think about putting in some cabbage and stuff. It's not yeah. too late to do that. And uh, can't you do beets in the winter? You can as do well? beets in the winter. You can do carrots in the winter. Um, I mean, as long as you get it in before it freezes. Uh, and you got a couple weeks of growth. I mean, it's not a bad idea to get it sprouted, and they can just kind of gr- slowly grow all winter long. I mean, it's worth a try, right? Oh yeah, I uh, I don't know if I I may try to get in the garden. Uh, it's been so muddy. I have I to mean, actually. Well, that's it. And I yeah. actually have, I have to recover my greenhouse. My plastic after six years finally gave gave up the ghost. So uh, got to get in there so I can preserve my strawberries for the winter. Absolutely. I love when strawberries overwinter because you get such much better strawberries as a result. Huh. Uh, and I have a whole bunch of new strawberries that grew this year because strawberries only produce for two, three years before they kind of the new sprouts have to grow up. The old ones just kind of die. Uh, and this year, I spent a lot of time getting them to grow wider uh, and replace some of the older ones. So I've got a good good head in there. Is your greenhouse on the ground, as in dirt, or do yeah, you have it on a foundation? No, it's it's on it's on the dirt. But I've raised the inside, so it's on the dirt as a base. But then I put a layer of cloth down and put. Uh, f- uh, fill compost really uh, in the greenhouse as the growing medium. So on the floor, yeah, it's hot. So on top, so I, on the right. So I've got just the ground. I built the enclosure, and then right. I built in the enclosure an L A A. I just put basically wood down with a walkway. Uh-huh. I just filled up to up to about two about a foot and a half of dirt on each side of a of a f- foot and a half wide walkway. So do you have shelving as well, or just no? I didn't put shelving in. I should have, but I haven't put shelving in. Just strictly ground. Just strictly ground level. Ground. Yeah, yeah. I have no shelving in there. Son of a gun. Uh, yeah, it grows very interestingly. I mean, I, I've had great success in the greenhouse, and uh, probably oh. still have some tomatoes down there. After last night, probably not. But uh, <laughs> not with the top being mostly off. So it'll be a how, good how big there. is it? Uh, it's uh, twenty by ten. Okay. And down the middle, there's a a. a Oh, it's 200 square feet, so, but of that 200 square feet, about 20 square feet is the walkway. So it's only 100, it's 180 square feet of growing space. Wow. You can grow a lot of stuff in that. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I've had, I think I had about 20 tomato plants in there this year, and they grew okay. They grew okay. Through the winter. Yeah. Yeah, they'll die now because the top's off. But, like, I keep a rosemary bush in there. Yeah. Because uh, rosemary dies here in the wintertime because of the frost. But that, fr- that rosemary bush is about four years old that's in there. You know, my mint and some of my other herbs um, lasted over last winter, and they came back out, and so I, I really? just left them there and let her, let her rip. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes yeah. you get lucky. Uh, David, I, I was um, 
going over some of the uh, this last week, some of the interesting things that happened. And as you know, uh, there's been a couple folks a uh, little concerned about refugees coming from Syria. You may have may have heard about that. Uh, uh, in fact, I believe it was virtually every Republican governor, initially except for one, but now two. Uh, that said we will not accept Syrian refugees. In fact, Governor Deal here in Georgia issued an executive order barring the state's Homeland Security Department from and every other department from cooperating <laughs> with the federal government in the resettlement of Syrian refugees. And you would have thought, David, that we were getting in 100,000 Syrian refugees a day. And I know Obama has thrown that magic 100,000 number around. Uh, but you 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 are a firm believer in the fact that Obama lies, right? No doubt. No doubt. Well, he lied about this, um, and he's it's really the hypocrisy that Obama has shown on refugees in this situation is stunning, because the real refugee crisis that we have has nothing to do with Syria in the United States. It has to do with Central American children and women. That's where our refugees come from. And what has Obama done to them? He's put them in jails. Yeah. They start without, They start out in what they call heleras, which are like freezers, basically. And they stay there for a week until they either give up or they, they get finally get moved out to jails where they spend, they had been spending months and months and months, now they're supposed to spend weeks in those things. That's where the real refugee, but in fact, he, he went out to Chris Christie, because Chris Christie said, I mean, inappropriate in my opinion, but he said, it. You know, I don't even want refugee children here, right? So Bob says, oh, we love children, except for the ones you're putting in freezers, those children, right? I mean, they're, they're, the guy is just an absolute joke uh, on this issue. But getting to the, the other joke is these governors who think they actually can stop people from moving to their state. Um, and so the night that Governor Deal issued his order, I actually gave a couple interviews, one on Fox News here in Atlanta and one to WSB. And they showed him that night, and you never guess what I got about 11.30 that evening. Hate mail! Oh, no, I got a death threat. Oh, oh this is more than just hate mail. Oh, okay. This is a specific death threat against me, my family, and my firm. Uh, fortunately, it was left in a voicemail by an individual who didn't turn off his caller ID. ha, <laughs> ha. So Dumb and dumber? Apparently. So our friends at the Sandy Springs Peace Department are looking into this for me and conducting the appropriate arrests uh, in, in, in a timely fashion. You know, once you again, You can disagree with somebody, but really to threaten death against somebody, you either... How did he even do your home numbers listed? No, it's at the firm. He left oh. it at the firm. Oh. Yeah, my home number is listed because I'm not afraid. Yeah. But uh, it's also why I carry a concealed weapon. Uh <laughs> But at the same time, where do people get off thinking you can threaten death to somebody for what they believe? What what they believe, oddly enough, no, that is wait, consistent wait, wait with the Constitution. I won't argue with that, what you believe. I won't argue with that okay. a second. Because you and I are friends. Well, yeah, I, I think that, that's consistent with the Constitution. Exactly. Yes. It's not It's not just what you believe. It's what's there. It's and what's there. Is, and this is – I, I got – I get too upset, and and I I get people. I want to talk to that Charles guy. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking. No, I know you know what you're talking about, and I defend you regularly yep. with, with folks. What I get upset with is just like what you said about Obama. He doesn't have a clue. No, 
the governors have no clue. And what's what is more abominable is the fact that the damn media takes it. Oh. And they, and, and they, they have even, no clue. They don't even know which planet they're on. It, it's amazing. You have all these people who don't have an understanding of either the law or many, many times even the facts. And there are other and they just go off. And they're either they're they're also attorneys. Oh, uh, some of which I deal with. That also, it's just stunning. Yeah. Like you would never see me opine, David, for example, on a criminal law case or or a. PI case or a or a workers' comp. I know nothing about those areas. So the people call me and say, "What do you think about this?" I don't. I don't know enough about the area to give an opinion on it. That doesn't stop people from opining on immigration issues, however, uh, frequently. What was stunning about this thing with Deal, Governor Deal, is that you would think there were we were being flooded with Syrian refugees here in Georgia. Do you know how many Syrian refugees have actually been resettled here in the last four years? <laughs> Fifty nine. Fifty nine. Well, I, I, you know, you know that I'm not a Democrat, and yes. you know that I don't much care for either the president right. or the vice president. But the vice president came out the other day and said exactly what you'd said. I did. Did you happen to see it? No, I did not see him. Oh yeah, he came out strongly. I believe this was Sunday, but he came out very strongly about, you know. What's everybody getting jerked out of shape about? It takes two years. Two years. Yeah, this is the funny part. And I said, we need to have a better. That before we need to have a better process for the refugees. Okay, so one of the governors says, "What what do you want to change?" Well, I'm not entirely familiar with the process. (laughs) Then how the hell do you know what you're talking about? There is no process more thorough for vetting immigrants, and I would tell you for any human being, than what refugees go through. There's been a couple of funny plays on that. The Onion had a really hilarious idea of what the refugees go through. It was very funny. Um, well, for us, we're not going through it. It's terrible for them. But to go through a, a year and a half to two year or longer process while you're in a refugee camp. And here's what the interesting thing is. All those refugees you see coming to Europe, we don't take them. We take ones that typically are in refugee camps in Jordan uh, or in the Middle East. Anybody that leaves that area automatically does not get accepted into our program. Second, we, we, we've actually only been asked to vet, as I recall correctly, around 22,000 refugees in the last four years. We've only allowed in, in the last four years, 2,000 of these people. Okay, let me ask, though, and this, this is a, how have so many Somalians gotten into Minnesota? Well, because Somali, remember, we've been refu- we've been resettling Somali refugees since Bill Clinton was president. Okay, so this is not oh, we just brought in a whole bunch of Somalis last year. We've been resettling them for almost twenty years at this point because of what's been going on. I mean, nobody needs to remind you of you know the the, the seals that were killed there. I mean, it's a failed state. It's been a failed state for for two decades. Um, Minnesota simply is a state that's accepted them and communities that have accepted them. And what they'd like to do when they resettle refugees is put them near people from their countries to make the transition easier. And that's worked remarkably well. Uh, you have the kids, that, some of the kids that come in that just don't fit. They, they just don't click. They don't get in. They came at that wrong age. It's like, I don't know about you, did your parents move when you were a kid? Okay. My parents. Well, I mean, were, no. My you parents mean from when I was a kid. State state or Moving when you're a kid can be a really wonderful thing, or it can be the worst thing in your life. 
Okay, and so when a lot of these refugees, some of the refugees resettle with their kids, it's just the wrong time for the kid, and they just came with the wrong crowd of people, and they do stupid things. Now that might be getting into drugs or bad things or crime, could be getting into Islamic te- extremism. Uh, it doesn't happen a lot. For example, over the last, I think it's since nine eleven, we've resettled somewhere in the neighborhood of like nine hundred thousand refugees, somewhere in that neighborhood, and three have been arrested on terrorism grounds. They were actually three Iraqis that were uh, uh, convicted of funneling money to extremists in Iraq back a while ago, from Tennessee, okay, well, actually. I, I, think, though, I think the numbers that have gone, the Somalis that have gone from Minnesota and they, But they were resettled before. This is, this is in the last 10, this is since like 9-11. Okay. Those kids were, were came in before then. Or they were born here. Some of them were actually born in the United States. And then they decided yeah, to go so, to... But looking at just the ones that we've resettled since, since Bush, basically, um, three have been accused of terrorism and convicted, uh, which means one out of every, let's say, 300,000 refugees is a terrorist. Let's just use that terminology. One out of every 22,000 Floridians kills somebody. Should we bar Floridians from coming to Georgia, too? Sounds like a deal to yeah. me. <laughs> I mean, you can make numbers say whatever you want numbers sure. to say, uh, but the reality is, if we have a, if, if we as a country believe we have a moral obligation to help refugees in certain circumstances on our own criteria, which it, which are remarkably thoroughly vetted, then what are we afraid of? Uh, I'd be way more afraid of homegrown, homegrown extremism, both from white supremacists and from Islamic extremists. Uh, Many of which we've we've seen no Islamic terrorism. Acts committed murder since 9-11. What did we do, with, and we're out of time. Let's take a break. Let's take a break here on the immigration. I'll be back in a second on our next segment. Si usted tiene problemas con inmigración o asuntos que tiene que arreglar, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Tenemos más de 50 años de experiencia haciendo las leyes de inmigración y defendiendo a los inmigrantes. Llámenos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611 o al www.immigration.net Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. We were talking about, David, this whole refugee System and you were bringing up a point. You remember what you were yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, uh, how did we vet both the Cubans and the uh, boat people that came in uh, at different times? Right. So let's look at the Vietnamese. First of all, that was and and were they classified refugees? Well, let's look at this because we really only created a refugee category technically since 1980 with the creation of the 1980 uh, Refugee Act. That's when that's when all our asylum laws were kind of 
congealed together uh, in accordance with our treaty obligations, which we signed in 1967, the International Treaty on, on, on Refugees. We signed 67, didn't pass a law really enacting it until 1980. Uh, a lot of those refugees settled in the 70s here. Most of them came in the 80s. Keep in mind, most of the people you would call boat people or Vietnamese folks were boat people from Vietnam that ended up in Thailand. And they were in refugee camps in Thailand and other countries in Southeast Asia for years before they came to the U.S. The vetting process today is much more thorough than the vetting process we had for Vietnamese. And you have something really interesting, that the, the kind of the comparison between the fear you have today of refugees coming from Syria, coming to the U.S., and somehow being ISIS terrorists, and some of the people that came from Vietnam, there are really a large number of kids that came as part of the, the Vietnamese crisis, the Vietnamese resettlement here, who ended up committing crimes in America. Now, they weren't terrorists, but they committed some pretty pretty terrible acts, either as gangs or as individuals. And we've ended up deporting a, a pretty sizable number of Vietnamese to Vietnam now, or those that have deportation orders and can't be, yet be deported, uh, because of what they did after they got here. You don't see that level of crime. You don't see that level of, um, of fear coming from today's refugees because our system is so much better. Now, here's what's really interesting. So you had Governor Deal acting on basically he, is, he would be the opposite of Winston Churchill. Okay, Winston Churchill, we have nothing to fear, but fear it's us. That Churchill, that was uh, Roosevelt. Sorry about that. <laughs> I don't want to be like Ben Carson. So Roosevelt goes, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. Okay, except that you're in Georgia, and you're afraid of 57 Syrian refugees. Then we have to fear that as well. Congress was so concerned. Let me just take this. A bipartisan, David, coalition in Congress of about, 240 GOPers and somewhere around 50 Democrats pass a bill last week to enhance our refugee system. Now, David, what do you think they added? How did they make the Bush-Obama refugee process better? What do you think they did to make it so robust that not a single terrorist could sneak through the system. Do you, do, you, do you know what they did? Any idea what they did? No. You, would you like to know what they did? Sure. It's probably amazing, right? Because Congress, I mean, you had about 300 elected officials, presumably, what, our best and brightest? Well, no, let's not get carried away here. <laughs> 300 of our elected officials come together and develop a new plan for refugees. So what exactly, this is amazing, Dave, they... Why nobody thought of this before, I don't, it really says to the State Department and immigration, you must be idiots that you didn't think of this before. So here is what they added to the refugee screening process and the process itself. For now on, for a Syrian or Iraqi refugee or anybody who's lived in those countries in the last three years to come to America, this is what they have to do now, the, the Secretary of Homeland Security, the Director of the FBI, and the Eternal General of the United States must personally sign off on those refugees. Wow. I never thought of doing that before. Oh, wait a second. That's not true, David. We have done that before. Do you know what we do that for? When we release individuals from Guantanamo Bay. Hmm. So now we've created refugees from Syria and Iraq to detainees from Guantanamo Bay. The good news is... Uh, 
common sense has prevailed in the Senate, at least for some people, and this, this bill will never see the light of day in the United States Senate. Uh, at a certain point, you might not like the bureaucracy of the United States, but I know a lot of, quote, bureaucrats. I don't know government employees. They take their job seriously. I don't know a single government employee that would knowingly or even mistakenly allow into the United States somebody they thought could possibly be a terrorist. You know, we have the standard in immigration law that Congress passed, David. You don't have to be convicted of terrorism to be barred from the United States. The standard is this. Is there a reason to believe that you were sympathetic, involved with, assisted with, any, any even hint or rumor that you were near terrorism of any kind, you are not coming into the United States for the rest of your life. And trust me, there is a robust database of this stuff. Now, one of the complaints I heard from, this is, this is a hilarious complaint, these people are refugees. There's no database of them in Syria. How can we check them out? So wait a second. So let's take the logical extension of your argument in that regard. So you want us, if this database existed in Syria, to call Assad and say, look, um, uh, this guy here from uh, Aleppo wants to come. Can you give us your database on him so we can check him out? That's what you want to do, right? Um, Yeah, that's stupid. That's not how you get the best information anyway. And this is why part of the vetting process, this is why it takes two years Not only do you get interviewed at least once, if not multiple times, by U.S. government and U.N. officials, but your background story is checked against other stories of others from your area. People are asked about you. And that's why so few of the refugees are are like individual single men. I think to this point, of the 2,000 that have come, 2% have been single men of, quote, fighting age. The vast majority are either children, over 50%, single mothers, or families, or old people. Old people make up like another 30% of this process. With just what you said, it flashed in my mind, you know, not two years, but an incredible amount of time. If you're saying that the, the best information comes from the guy across the street or this or that... How in the world do we have the number of people necessary to go and interview your neighbor? Well, well keep your in mind, we're, all, we're not going there in the camps. We're not, they're not going out to Aleppo to interview these people. They're doing it in the camps. But think about this. We've only allowed in 2,000 people. David, you could vet 2,000 people in, in four years. You could. Honestly, yeah. you could. And if you had a billion-dollar budget... To do it with? Then I might be able to do it. You could certainly do it, which is what you have. Okay? So this whole vetting process, then we run them through every known database that we have. Okay. Do any of those databases have fingerprints and all that yes, kind of Yes, absolutely. Really? Absolutely. And, David, we put this up through Interpol, too. Nobody talks about that. But you, the U.N. goes through the Interpol on this stuff. And is there a possibility? Can anybody say with assurity that I can guarantee that one of these people won't be an Islamic extremist? No. Neither can I guarantee that your child won't, won't murder somebody. I just can't do that. Nobody can do that. If that's your standard, then you really don't have a desire to bring refugees into the United States because that's not the standard. 
what you can do is make the best effort possible to, to clear the background of every possible refugee and then help them get, get, get forward and moving forward in the United States. Now, the other complaint I've heard about the refugees is, well, they're going to go welfare. David, I'm going to tell you that's probably true initially. The first, I think it's three months, but it could be four months that a refugee is in the United States. They are allotted uh, money, I think, and I think it's like three to $500 a month to, per person to pay for rent and food and to get some furniture and get a job. And these refugee resettlement agencies get this money. They get them in an apartment. They get them some furniture. They, they help find them a job. Because as soon as they come as refugees, they actually have work permits. I mean, it's part of refugees. And a year after they're being here as refugees, they can apply for a green card, most, and most, which most of them actually do. So for, I think it's three or four months, they get this base help from the U.S. government. Now, I'll tell you, Germany gives people like two years of help, and France gives six months of help. So we, the help we're giving is relatively minimal. And then, of course, as refugees, David, they are entitled to go on welfare. They are entitled to food stamps. They are entitled to WIC. They are entitled to uh, Social Security uh, disability. They're entitled to that. that. Our Congress has said that since 1980. And so the complaint is, well, they're going to go to welfare. True, but that might be true initially. But let's take them five years later and see where they are. And their use of welfare five years later is far below the native-born numbers in the United States. But if that, is, as one of our old co-hosts used to say, if your concern is welfare, then your concern is not about the immigration system. Your concern is about the welfare system. And that's a whole different animal here. All right? Would people still come as refugees if they couldn't get government help? Probably. Simple question. Yes. Hope Ref- it's a simple answer. <laughs> refugee is a documented individual. Correct. Immigrant can be, or alien, can be an undocumented resident. Right. I- immigrants are those that intend to remain permanently in the United States, and they can be both documented and undocumented. For those that are documented, while they do go through, obviously, a security training and a background check, it's not nearly as thorough as the one we give to refugees. Now, one of the big complaints we've seen recently uh, as kind of say shifting away because people have been shut down on the refugee issue because they're starting to realize, oh, my God, we really do do a great job on screening refugees. Well, where's the bigger hole? There must be a hole. Everybody's looking for the hole. Well, that's in the visa waiver program. Visa waiver program. What's that? It sounds like we wave visas around for a flag. We're waving mm-hmm. visas. Visa waiver program was created by Congress back in 1990 and uh, modified substantially after 9-11. It today is not... Well, David, you've been to Europe, right? You've never been to Europe? No. You're kidding me. No. You've been to Canada? Yes. All right. So you go to Canada, need a visa to go to Canada? No. You've been to Mexico? Yes. Need a visa to go to Mexico? No. All right. Why not? Didn't have to. I had the driver's license. All I had to have. Why not, though? What? Because we had a mutual agreement. Well, not mutual because we don't want Mexicans in the United States without visas. Well, Mexico says, we want you to come here, so we don't want to hassle you with a visa. And spend your money. So you can just literally walk into Mexico, show your passport, and you're in. And the visa waiver used to be like that before 9-11. Used to literally, if you were from one of 36 countries. Now, these 36 countries were chosen because their overstay rate was less than, like, 2%. So less than 2% of the people that came from England would overstay their visas, so they became part of the visa waiver program. So it's 36 countries around the world at the time. They could literally get on an airplane. While on the airplane, like you would to Mexico, fill out a form 
arrive at the airport, and be let into the country. That's how it used to work. It doesn't work that way now. The way the work works out, they, they created a new online system called ESTA, capital E-S-T-A, where if you're from England and you want to come to America, you have to go online approximately at least three days before your flight and complete this online questionnaire. And then that questionnaire, without your fingerprints, is screened through the databases uh, make sure you haven't overshot your visa before. Make sure you don't have any criminal convictions that are involved in all the databases. And then you're approved. And then you get on an airplane. And then when you come to America, you give your fingerprints at the port of entry. All right? And that is that is instantaneously run through the databases in the United States. If you get hit, if you say, oh, there's a problem with your fingerprints, they walk you to a room and then they basically put you back on an airplane. Then, right? then you start getting waterboarded. And yeah. got all right, we can take another break already, but we're having fun today, David. Are Let's we? take our second break here on the immigration. We're going to talk more about the visa waiver program and the threat that some congressmen believe it provides to America. Si usted ha casado con un ciudadano o tiene problemas con inmigración o tiene una oferta de trabajo, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Con más de 100 años de experiencia en la ley de inmigración, conocemos la ley y sabemos cómo ayudarle. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611, o visítenos al www.immigration.net. Hello, I'm Pat Rulo, hostess of Speak Up and Stay Alive, the voice for patient safety. Now heard every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. right here at americaswebradio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Refugee Hour on America's Web Radio. Dave, we were talking about this whole crisis of refugees and really what it means. And I mentioned before that part, really our biggest refugee crisis is coming from the South. Now, we've allowed into the country, we, because of our treaty obligation, people coming seeking asylum and refugee status in the United States, more than probably 100,000 people in the last two years from Central America, what they call the Northern Triangle, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Not Mexicans. Mexicans have a net negative coming to the U.S. Yeah, there's Mexicans that still come, but more are leaving. Um, so you've got this refugee crisis, and what are they fleeing? So in Syria, they are fleeing what? The Assad regime, ISIS... <laughs> Bullets. Death, bullets, okay. <laughs> what are they fleeing in Central America? Bullets. Bullets. And gangs, murders, rapes, uh, governments that are completely in, unable to, to care for their citizens and help their citizens. So, I mean, there's some differences because religion is not a component in Central America as far as fleeing, but they're there. And it's interesting, the, 
these Christian refugees, because they're almost 99% Christians coming from that part of the world, them were putting in jails. Them were holding in detention centers. And people coming from the Middle East were going through a much more detailed process to let them in. Why? And Obama created back last year, in November of last year, he was going to amplify the ability of, of people who were citizens or residents of the U.S. or TPS holders to get their children out of Central America. How many have come so far? Like five in a year. Because hmm. they're using the same criteria to vet these kids, children, that they're vetting up here. And they have no money to do it with like they do, it, like they do for other refugee crises. But my, part of the concern here is Cuba. You know, we have treated Cubans and those fleeing the Castro regime as refugees for the last 50 years. <laughs> I don't know how many Cubans have come here since that time, David, but a lot. And I've got a lot of friends that are Cuban that have fled legitimately fearing the political repercussions of, of Castro. But a big chunk of those that have come out of Cuba are more economic refugees than they are political refugees. Today, is there still a refugee crisis coming out of Cuba? Absolutely. Because Raul Castro is not an idiot. He's a very smart guy. Probably smarter than our own president. And he's actually using the refugees from Cuba to hurt the U.S. government more. There literally are boatloads. Just recently, just this last week, uh, 2,000 Cuban refugees showed up in Nicaragua, Costa Rica. Um, Do you think that 2,000 people actually left Cuba without Castro knowing about it? No, of course not. Um, they can't even move from house to house without permission. They're going to leave the country? So he's letting more, it's like the Mariel boat lift of 80, the Cuban raft exodus of 94. He's letting more and more go. They're coming to Nicaragua. They're coming to Costa Rica. And where are they actually going to end up? In the U.S. In the United States. This is where they're coming. Because we allow Cubans, the moment they set foot on U.S. soil, one, to be released from custody immediately. And a year later, apply for a green card. You think you have a problem with Syrian refugees who've been vetted for two years before they come here? And you're not concerned about Cubans? Trust me, we have plenty of Cubans that we've tried to deport and can't that have committed some heinous acts on American soil. And you're concerned about about Syrian refugees, of which we have no documents, it's even a crime, for God's sakes, being committed here since they've been here. Uh, our, Our priorities are just so skewed because of politics, because of a lack of information. I believe strongly that America is a nation of immigrants and that we should welcome refugees. And we should take numbers that are commensurate with our own ability to assimilate and bring them into American society. I think assimilation is essential. That doesn't mean abandoning your culture and abandoning your history. It means becoming part of the American fabric, like my grandparents ultimately did. Yet, my grandparents who came here in the, in the 20s, up until the time they died in 1980 and 2004, they literally affiliated with Germans. They went to German clubs. They spoke German to each other. They, they lived a German life in America, but they were still able to become American and to participate in American society. Today, apparently, we expect people to come here and abandon their entire heritage and to, to, to walk on the street like a valley girl. I mean, that's just not how, it, it's not how it's ever worked in America. What you need to do is look at these, look at these folks two generations from now. And see what they're going to, what their grandkids look but like. But did your did your grandparents and I and I think I can probably answer this without asking it. I doubt that your grandparents were the ones that supported Press Three for German 
or one for English. Well, we didn't have that back then, David. <laughs> but I no, I mean. But think that that was the fear. But you know what's the problem they, with that? They, they, Does the government make people do that? You know, here's no, my problem. If you come to the USA and you want to be a citizen, uh-huh. then I don't have anything against your heritage. But if you want to be an American, you speak English. You don't. Okay. What if you, you just can't them? learn English? What if you don't have the edu- What if you don't even read or write your own language? Well, then you got a problem. Yeah, exactly. And this is why press one for Spanish and two for English works. That's not the government. Man- the government's never mandated you do that. So why do private companies do that? Private companies didn't think this way in the 50s and 60s and 70s and the 80s. Why? Because the way we weren't pushed to put. They weren't pushed to it. But now companies say, well, we want, we want that market. Well, I'm going to make it easy for that market to shop my product. Of course I'm going to do that. I have bilingual receptionists, of course, because I'm an immigration lawyer. I want people to be confident in their own language. When I interview people, I don't want people speaking English to me. They might not be. They might not know the right words to say in English. It's great to be able to speak English and be able to buy a loaf of bread, but to communicate your your life history, to communicate your fear, you can't do that in your own in, in, in another language effectively. You can only do it in your language. You, some of them can barely do it in their own language. So I, I don't, I mean, for me, it doesn't bother me. That, to me, is just economics working. That's just capitalism at its best. And, David, 20 years from now, you will not have to push Spanish, I promise. <laughs> it'll all just be English. That's be, what's going to happen. It'll all we be have a wave of immigration against you. Trust me, David, when you get old and gray, um, I'm older there. and grayer, uh, <laughs> you will not have to press two for English. Okay, I promise. You won't have to do that. Um you know, it's interesting, David, when I call people, sometimes I have to call them and say, hey, I need to talk to your mom. And the kid, and this five-year-old answers the phone in English. Hey, how can I help you? Then talk to your mom. Mommy, mommy, el abogado está por teléfono. You know, so the kids, like, they're, who speaks perfect English at five or six or four is really their, their pathway into, into American society. And that's what you see happening all the time. David, I will tell you, just so that you know, when I have interviews with people, and we're getting them green cards where they want to apply citizenship. And they bring, a lot of people bring their kids with them to their interviews. I talk to their kids and say, look, your job is this. Does your mom help you with homework? Oh, sometimes. Well, I have some homework for you. From now on, next three months while your mom gets ready to apply for naturalization, you only speak to her in English. Really? Really? You want your kids to speak better English? You want, you want the parents to speak better English? Have their kids speak to them in English. Now, parents, well, oh, I want my kid to be able to speak Spanish. They'll be able to speak Spanish still. My dad could speak German until, you know, he went off to war. And, he, and later in life, he just kind of forgot German. But he could speak German. When he went to Germany, he could speak to his grandparents in German. Uh, but English was his first language. Well, it was his second language, although his English, German was his first language as, a, as an infant. Learned English in school. Uh, and uh, never spoke with an accent. And by the time he was, you know, 78 when he died, he didn't, his German was gone. It was, just, it was just evaporated from his brain. That's what you're going to see happen, and that's just the way it is. And I don't speak any German, other than saying, Ich bin ein Berliner, which I can't even say correctly, but I'm a jelly donut. Um, <laughs> now, David, I want to ask you another question. We've been talking about refugees and Cubans. I want to take this a next step to politics and Cubans and refugees. Now, David, about, gosh, it's probably been four years ago now, we had on the show uh, our friends from the um, Natural Born Citizen Movement. It's been about four years, I think. Uh, because it was right at the time of the last election. And we, we had people from both sides on, uh, whether you were or you were not born in the United States. So here's my question. You have three candidates at least on the GOP side 
that under at least some of the theories of natural-born citizens of the Constitution cannot be president. Can you name who those three are? Cruz. Okay. Rubio. And? And, um, oh, well, he's not a candidate anymore. Jindal. Jindal. There's actually, I didn't even count him. How about this one? Donald Trump. I don't know. I have no clue. Who's Donald Trump's mother? I don't know. She was Scott. Right. Scottish. Unclear whether she was a citizen when he was born. Maybe she was. If she was, she was a citizen. He's good. She wasn't? There are some people who would say that unless both your parents are natural-born citizens of the United States, you cannot be natural-born for purposes of the Constitution. I don't think they have to be natural-born. Well, they, they can be, be naturalized. Citizens. They have to be citizens. Uh, I think some of the some of the one guy we had on here, David, he was actually more thorough than that. He was like, no, they have to have been born here, too. So only really a second-generation American could no, be president. I, you don't I, think I that's mean, what it's, it's quite clear what, what our founding fathers were saying with natural-born citizens. And, and I still agree with it, that with the exception of the first first president and so forth, um, Washington anyone, was born here. Anyone else, well, his parents weren't from here, though. So he I couldn't. Really? I thought Washington's parents were born in the U.S., too. I don't know. I, I, I thought I don't he was. Believe, I don't believe so. Let's but Google anyway. it. Let's Google it. Um, Google knows everything. <laughs> but anyway, the, the, the part of it was that from then on, the, the parents didn't have to be natural born. They didn't have to be born in the U.S., but they had to be citizens of the U.S. And then their son or daughter or whoever would be a natural born citizen. And, and the, the, the uh, explanation, I thought, was quite good, is that they didn't want, quote, unquote, dual citizenship or dual feelings uh, towards the mother country or towards <coughs> whether it's France or England or wherever. <coughs> they didn't want a president that could uh, help Kenya out a whole lot, like some people have. Uh, they didn't want. They didn't want you having dual feelings. They wanted you. If you were president, they wanted your total allegiance to the United States, not a partial. I have no problem with that. Okay. Um, now, is there, you know, exceptions? You know, I mean, every you can fight the case, and you have fought the case that that's not what I just said is incorrect. I don't believe it to be, but that's my interpretation of what the Constitution says. I believe right, so that. Here, here, here is Google's a wonderful thing. George Washington was born in Virginia, provided, and thus a natural-born citizen, provided parentage has no effect. Washington's father, on the other hand, died a British subject before the Revolution. So if parental matters, if parental citizenship matters, then George Washington was not a natural-born citizen and would have been excluded from office as a commander-in-chief. Um, so, I mean, I think that's kind of an interesting thing. But let's go back to our friend Cruz. But it's, it, that's not totally correct either because the Constitution, in their writing, they said that uh, it wasn't, it didn't affect the first, First tier of people being elected, or being uh, being uh, natural born citizens. <clears throat> Conceivably, an Englishman or a or French, whoever, could have been president initially. The well, first one. I'm just saying, under the theory, 
whether Washington could do it, maybe he couldn't. But let me look at this. Ted Cruz was not even born in the United States. All right. He was born in Canada. All right. Now, who was the last GOP candidate to be born outside the United States? Uh, Canada, yeah. McCain. McCain. So McCain was born outside the United States, but he was born on a U.S. military base. Um, Congress passed a law that said he was a natural-born citizen. Believe it or not. You know that, right? Well, yeah. And his parents were clearly both U.S. citizens. Now, we know not only was Ted Cruz born outside the United States, the question is, were both his parents U.S. citizens at the time? One of them was not. No, one was Cuban. His father was still a refugee. Uh, So if Obama is not qualified to be president because his father was Kenyan and thus not a natural-born citizen, are we going to hear the same chorus of naysayers on Cruz? I think the Democrats at some point will bring it up like crazy. Okay. But what about the people that brought it up before? You think they're going to bring it up again? I'm just curious. No, I, they already have. Okay. And that's the point I want to make. They already have. This promises to be a very interesting election season. Let's come back on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Soy Charles Cook, jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Estoy en su lado. Con más de 20 años de experiencia con la ley de inmigración, conozco cómo ayudarle. Sé la ley. Y sé que alguna gente podemos ayudar. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos en el internet. www.immigration.net Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hello, I'm Pat Rulo, hostess of Speak Up and Stay Alive, the voice for patient safety, now heard every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. right here at AmericasWebRadio.com. Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment here on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Uh, David, uh, a few minutes ago, we, we started to get into the Visa Waiver Program, and I want to go back to that for a second. So if you want if you want to come from one of the now, I think it's 46 countries, I could be mistaken, I think it's 46 countries, maybe 48 countries, in which we do not require you to have a visa stamp in your passport. Okay, so what's a visa stamp? Let's say I'm from uh, Russia and I want to come to America. Uh, I first have to make an appointment online at the U.S. consulate in Moscow. Consulates are where visas are issued, embassies are where American business is done. Many times they're in the same location, but they're different things. Um, so first, I have to go online. It's all electronic now. And I fill out a form for a visa, visitor visa application. I then pay a fee online. The fee is around $150 to apply. I then get set up for an appointment to get my fingerprints taken and my picture taken, what we call biometrics. Those then get run through various databases, and you are set up for an appointment. could be three days later. could be three weeks later, depending on how busy the consulate is. You then go to the interview. The consular officer pulls out your, your stuff online. And the consular officer has about 
60 to 120 seconds to make a determination based upon the information in front of him whether you should be issued a visa. Now, sometimes it's an easy no because the individual has a hit. He's got a, he's a criminal record. He's got something said about him in the database. No, thank you very much. Have a nice day. Well, nothing negative is in the database, and that person has to convince the officer in his one to two minutes that he intends to go back to his home country at the end of his stay in the United States. They're going to look at your bank, you know, evidence of your bank accounts, evidence of your family that's still in your home country. They're going to look at what you do for a job, what kind of living you have, if you own an apartment or a house. And you have to bring all these documents in to show that you intend to go back home. So basically you have to prove a negative. I am, I'm going to prove I'm not going to stay in the United States. So you get through all that. The consulate is great. We'll send you your passport. You leave your passport there. They stamp your passport as a visa to come to the United States. When you arrive at the, on the airplane in the United States... You are again fingerprinted. You are again have your picture taken. They are compared to each other to make sure they're the actual same person. You then are questioned by an officer at the airport. Say, what is your intention to come to the United States? If the officer believes you that you're coming to visit and you're going to be temporary, you get to leave the airport and go about your business. If he doesn't believe you, they put you back on an airplane and go back home. What is, what, what is the difference between Russia and the 46 countries that we don't require a visa for? The, the key difference, the only difference, is the in-person interview. So there's no in-person interview abroad before that person comes into the United States. That in-person interview is conducted when? When that individual lands at the airport in the United States, where, again, he has 45 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes to make a decision. Uh, So instead of being the second line of defense, CBP becomes the very first line of defense. Here, why why are congressmen concerned about the visa waiver program? This is where Paris really means something. Because none of the people that engaged in the terrorist activities were actually not born in France and Belgium. They were all Europeans. All of them. They were born there. They were citizens of those countries. Citizens of France and Belgium can use the visa waiver program. They don't need any visa appointments. That's the concern. So a couple of things they should easily make changes to. If there is a record of you traveling from France to the Middle East in the last three or four or five years, you're barred. Boom. you got to go to the embassy to get a visa. That should be a no-brainer. I don't know anybody who wouldn't support that. Even people in France and, 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 and Europe would support that. Absolutely support that. If you're dumb enough to go to Syria or Iraq or somewhere in the Middle East in the last three years, you need to, you need to come see the consulate. I don't have any problems with that whatsoever. Um, other than that, other than taking countries off the list, there's really not much more they can do. Do we have any of that going into other countries? Do we have, is there a similar? Um, we have to get visas to some countries. I mean, uh, we there is no that I'm aware of. There is no online system that you fill out to just be able to get on an airplane and get a pre-approved. As far as I know, the U.S. is the only program with something like ESTA. For example, I just went to Brazil. I had to get a visa to go to Brazil. So I had to use a, an officer. I had to use a, a company to get me a visa to go to Brazil. Um, but if next week, in two weeks, I'm going to Vienna in Austria. I'm just going to get on an airplane and go to Austria, uh, South Africa. You're going to do your show from Austria? Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to be there. Well, actually, I'm probably not going to miss that show. That, that's that first Monday in December. Um, maybe the second Monday in December. Second Monday in December. I'm not going to miss. It's the eighth, I think. I'm going to miss that. Um, going to South Africa for Christmas. Pretty sure I don't need a visa to go to South Africa either. Just get an airplane and go. Now, that's 
really kind of a remnant in some ways of the pre-9-11 days, pre-serious Islamic terrorism days. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if systems like the U.S.'s system becomes pretty common throughout the world, that we have to go online and, you know, pre-clear their immigration. Um, and I don't really have a problem with doing that. I mean, I, th- I think that's fair. I, the only problem I have, and I don't have a problem with it, but is knowing uh, that you have to do it. Yeah, well, that's the pro- well. Presumably, the airline when you book a ticket will say, "Have you done this?" And then re- remind you, the airlines have the ability to do that. Send you, and every every travel agent is going to say, "Hey, look, you need to do this done." If you, if you show up at the airport without this, you're you're not getting on the airplane. So just understand how it's going. So I think, I think that could be easily accommodated. That the big pro- the hodgepodge right now is you don't. What country do I need a visa for? What do I don't need a visa for? It's just kind of a hodgepodge. Now the other thing the U.S. has done, which is really made a big difference in the world as far as international travel, effective, uh, I think it's this Friday, uh, you must have what's called a machine-readable passport um, to travel into the, and into the United States and into many other countries. What does this mean? David, when's the last time you got a passport? Six years ago, ten All right, years so ago. So your, your passport, is, is it blue? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, is it really thick? Yeah. All right. Yours is probably a machine-readable passport then. Okay. Um, other countries, for example, we had one guy that came to me the other day who's traveling, and he doesn't have a machine-readable passport. He was going to go on a trip and come back. I said, well, you know, before you come back, they're not, they're not going to let you on the airplane, and certainly not getting in the U.S. without a machine So you're going to go get a passport. It's going to take me a month to get a passport. Then don't travel. But that machine-readable passport makes it very, 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 very difficult to be, have counterfeit passports. I mean, I can't tell you, David, the number of people who come to my office that enter the U.S. on fake passports. Uh, now your passport will be tied to your picture and your fingerprint. And the days of, you know, short of buying it from sort of expert forger from, from Spectre uh, or from the International Criminal Organization, you're not going to be able to photo-sub passports anymore. That, that day is gone. Other than the problem that they're having of all the stolen ones or whatever from Syria? Well, the question is, are those uh, uh, machine-readable? And I don't know if they're machine-readable. Evidently, they are. Well, if they're machine-readable, then the question becomes, they still have to be in the database. Uh, and if they're not in the, in the database, then we're just not going to accept them. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure Syria's not the only country to be missing passports. I'm sure other countries are missing passports as well. Um, but it does do it. goes a long way towards making it safer for the rest of us to travel in the United States. Um, so the, between the visa waiver program being modified, I, I think it should be modified. It should be more robust. And really, I don't want people on an airplane next to me that haven't gone through a screening that I am comfortable with. So if you've been to Syria or Iraq or anywhere in the Middle East in the last couple of years, I don't. You should go for an interview. No hassle off your nose. You got to spend an extra day at the end of the day, but Go for it. And I don't know anybody in those countries that would really complain about that. And really, France is taking this very seriously um, because of what happened in France. They know that these were literally homegrown terrorism. And I think the biggest factor in the U.S. that we need to be paying attention to is not the refugees, for example, we're letting in. Uh, but really the kids that are growing up here. What are we doing to make them, if, they, if they're refugee kids, part of American society? What are we doing to bring them in rather than making them apart? When you tag refugees as being evil, what does that do to the refugee's family and their self-esteem and how they interact with their mess of society? 
you if you're the person causing them to view themselves as different and separate rather than welcoming them, which is why welcoming them is so important, then you become responsible if there is a terrorism act in the future committed by them because you didn't bring them in to the system. Now, you're not going to bring everybody in. Some people are just bad people. There's evil bad people out there. We will likely always have evil bad people out there. All we can do as our best as a society is to try to raise them in ways they, become, they don't become that way and also to have a society that protects the rest of us from those evil acts, but not to the extent that our liberties are completely eviscerated. It's interesting, you know, we had this debate after 9-11, and there's that quote, I believe, from Ben Franklin, although it could be from Thomas Jefferson, that says, he who is willing to trade a little bit of uh, liberty for some security uh, deserves neither, or something like that. Uh, That same exact debate is going on in France right now, whose national, you know, theme is liberty, fraternity, uh, equality. And how much liberty do you give up in order to ensure safety, to ensure security? I think America, we've kind of gone to that, we've gone to that point. And maybe, maybe the, the reactions from governors this last week was an overreaction to a perception that Obama doesn't take security seriously. Uh, but I will tell you, as somebody who works inside the system, uh, the security has nothing to do with who the president is. Uh, the professionals in the system will do their job as well as can be humanly done, regardless of who the president of the United States is. Uh, and while there may be some policy changes and some people we don't necessarily detain, really the president doesn't dictate our security. Uh, he leads the way on it, but doesn't dictate how the professionals do it. And I think our professionals have done really they have a remarkable job. Uh, you know, no external terrorist attacks in the United States in 14 years? Does that mean we're good forever? Of course not. But I think it's a pretty good track record that we've done a really good job of breaking up terrorist rings of, uh, uh, that, are, that are foreign emanated. I mean, our biggest concern really remains from homegrown terrorism, both from the right and from the left, and from, from, from religion. You know, That's where we need to be really concerned uh, is on the fringes of society. Guys like the guy who made the death threat to me, I don't know who this guy is. Maybe he's on the fringe. Maybe he was an alcoholic. Maybe he was just doing crazy stuff that night. Who knows? But those are the people we need to be more concerned about while maintaining our vigilance on foreign security. Dave, it's been a great show this week. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, next week's show. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I will be frying a turkey on Thursday morning. I'm looking forward to that. I love fried turkey. There's no better way to cook turkey, by the way. There just isn't a better way to cook turkey. And I'm going to experiment with a orange glaze on that turkey this year. Does that sound good to you, David? Sounds have a, good. Have a great week to all our listeners. Have a happy Thanksgiving. And until next week, be safe. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.